Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 43, August 2021. Heightened Language and Black Playwrights. A conversation with Jacqueline Springfield. Hello again, Paul My here. Welcome. Since last time we've met, I've been on the road again with Cameron Meyer, my son and Ideas Executive Editor. We travelled all the way up to Fargo, North Dakota, near the Canadian border, marvelling at the vast expanse of the country, and of course our ears alert to the changing accents on the way. I wish I could report hearing anything quite as strong as Frances McDormand and her scene partners in this clip from the movie, Fargo. So where are you girls from? Chaska, Lesueur, but I went to high school in White Bear Lake. Go Bears. Okay. I want you to tell me what these fellas looked like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. Can you be any more specific? I couldn't really say. He wasn't circumcised. Was he funny looking apart from that? Yeah. So, you were having sex with a little fella then? Uh-huh. Is there anything else you can tell me about him? No. Like I say, he was funny looking. More than most people, even. What about the other fella? He was a little older. You know, he looked like the Marlboro Man. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But maybe I'm saying that, you know, because he smoked a lot of Marlboros. Uh-huh. You know, like a subconscious type of thing. Oh, yeah, that can happen. Yeah. Hey, they said they were going to the Twin Cities. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, is that useful to you? Oh, you betcha, yeah. Yeah. So, for the most part, on our trip, I can report that the uh, residents of Fargo were grateful for the publicity the movie gave their very thriving and cosmopolitan city. But they were faintly amused by the way their speech is sometimes portrayed in films. No, who's going home to Fargo, eh? (laughs) That's almost always natives' reaction to movie depictions of their accents, I'm afraid. Okay, now our real-life accent quiz. Guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. In 2010, I moved to London because I wanted to study in a school that was, like, you know, well-known, a better school. But then I found out that the prices were so expensive that I could I could never uh, pay for it. And I, even if I got a scholarship, I wouldn't have time to get a job so I could pay the rent. So uh, it was impossible. If you guessed Spain, congratulations, it was Ideas Spain 8. Go to the Spain page on the Europe page at dialectsarchive.com to find it. The subject was recorded by Sarah Nichols, one of Idea's senior editors. Thanks again, Sarah. Now here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? There was once when I was little, and it was April, probably the very end of April, almost early May, when I was 13, and we had a tremendous snowstorm that shut down the town for four days, and cars were buried, and it was like, 10 feet of snow or something ridiculous, and there was actually a moose that was walking down Main Street. It's clearly North America, but can you narrow it down? I left in a few clues. Get the answer next time. My guest today is Jacqueline Springfield, a professor at Kennesaw State University 
in Atlanta, Georgia. We first became acquainted when she pledged a monthly gift to IDEA. I'll be asking her about her reasons for supporting the archive. Jacqueline is an actor, director and dialect coach, as well as a voice and speech professor. She herself, at my invitation, chose our topic, heightened language and contemporary black playwrights. Welcome, Jacqueline, and congratulations on your new appointment, Kennesaw State University. Yes, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Was there something special about Kennesaw that uh, made you decide to accept an appointment there? I am the new faculty member, a new faculty member in the Department of Theater and Performance Studies. I was attracted to the metro Atlanta area, relocating from New York, because I wanted to be someplace where there was still an art-centered environment that was still diverse, uh, where there was still a lot of opportunity, but I wanted to be closer to family. My family is in Nashville, where I'm from. And also, you know, we uh, were tired of being so cold in the wintertime. <laughs> so we wanted to come to someplace warmer. So Atlanta fit the bill for that. Um, and KSU had always been in the back of my mind because I'd always, always heard about the strength of their theater program there. So when this opportunity came up, it was just the, it was perfect timing. I know you're going to be a wonderful addition to the program. And thanks so much for your generous donation to IDEA. That's what brought us together in the first place. You've become a regular sponsor. What would you say by way of encouragement to others to uh, follow your example? So IDEA has been a tremendous resource for me as an actor and as a dialect coach. And I thought it only fitting, understanding that it takes funding to do what you do and to provide the resource that IDEA provides. So I was moved to make a small monthly donation because I know that every bit helps. It was very encouraging. It always is a real morale boost when we, when we get a donation. That's fabulous. So heightened language in contemporary Black playwrights. You'd originally decided to focus on female Black playwrights, but now you're giving men equal time, apparently. <laughs> yes, you know, and the reason for that is that when I really started looking at heightened language, really thinking about how we've defined that and who it belonged to or who we think it belongs to, um, it was the work of female playwrights such as Katoria Hall, uh, such as Lynn Nottage, who really came to mind, but you have others, of course, August Wilson, uh, Marcus Gardley. So there, uh, I wanted to broaden the range because there's just so much incredible material that is evidence of how heightened language is used among Black playwrights. So I decided to give the men their shot as well uh, and <laughs> just talk about con some contemporary Black playwrights, both male and female. That's much appreciated. Well, let's start with the maybe the grandmother of them all, Lorraine Hansberry, among contemporary Black female playwrights, uh, first Black female playwright to have a play produced on Broadway, Raisin in the Sun. Let's start with the uh, clip with Sidney Poitier as Walter Lee and Diana Sands as Benita. Here we go. Listen, my Black brothers. Welcome, go see 
Do you hear the waters rushing against the shores of our coastline? Oh, come and go, see it. Do you hear the screeching of the cocks in yonder hills, beyond where our chiefs meet in council for the coming of the mighty war? Oh, come and go, see Do you hear the beating of the wings of the birds as they fly low over our mountains and the low places of our land? Oh, come and go, see Do you hear the singing of the women singing the sweet war songs? Oh, do you hear my we hear you flying this near. Telling us to prepare, to prepare for the greatest of the times. What would you tell us about this clip? So first you have these amazing vessels, uh, the actors Sidney Poitier and Diana Sands in this particular scene. And what Lorraine Hansberry has done here is she takes the imagery of West Africa and um, you can even hear the drum beats in the background, the music of or the sounds of West Africa, so that you have these uh, modern day black characters who are connecting back to their heritage and connecting back to their ancestry. And then she uses the language for Walter Lee to lift himself up to heroic status because he's talking, he, he's imagining that he is talking to the other black warriors that are in front of them in front of him and uh, you know just sort of um, lifting them up and lifting himself up in the process a lot of what we find in heightened language and as we talk about heightened language we're talking about language that expresses high emotion language that oftentimes is um, dealing with uh, heightened circumstances in terms of uh, you know what the stakes are high stakes so when we say heightened language, that essentially is what we're talking about. And you see that being used in this particular piece. You have repetition of words. Uh, so the repetition of the word accomagosie uh, and repetition of words and, and, and sounds is something that you oftentimes will find in heightened language. And what Lorraine Hansberry did with that term is that she actually took several different West African languages and coined the term that she uses in this particular speech. And you have repetition of that. And that along with the rhythm of the drums kinds of form, forms a kind of musicality and a kind of poetry that, um, which is something else that you find in heightened text that sort of uh, really structured metrical uh, quality to it. Yes, highly, highly rhetorical, but uh, very, very natural. Yes. Our second clip is Esther Roll as Lena from the same, same play, different production. Son, I come from five generations of people who were slaves and sharecroppers. But ain't nobody in my family never took no money from nobody. That was a way of telling us we wasn't fit to walk the earth. We ain't never been that poor. We ain't never been that dead inside. Heightened language, vernacular syntax and grammar, right? Right, yes. What you have happening here, and this goes back to what I was just saying about our ideas about who heightened language belongs to, right? We oftentimes think of Shakespeare, we think of the ancient Greeks. But what you have here is language that is very rooted in the African-American experience. So the grammar, the syntax, the word choice is different from what you might find with the Greeks or translations of the Greeks or with Shakespeare, but it's still high stakes, high emotion. There's still a sense of poetry to it. It is no less heightened 
than what you find other playwrights doing. It is just specific in the language, in the kind of language that it uses. And we should remind our listeners that really the objective of actors, directors, uh, text coaches like you and me, is to make that heightened language seem vernacular, seem to be inevitable, seem to be absolutely the words that that character must utter at that moment to express what he or she is feeling and experiencing. Exactly. And one of the things that I always talk about with heightened text is that it's similar to having a very, very tall tree. Because you have these big sounds, because you have this heightened emotion, the roots of the tree have to be even deeper. So as an actor, the work that you have to do has to dig even deeper. It has to be even more authentic. I like to think of the, um, you know, original Shakespeare's original pronunciation has been very much part of my career the last 20 years. And when I, through the great David Crystal, discovered Shakespeare's original pronunciation and its very vernacular sound, I was immediately chagrined to know that I had inherited a kind of a posh Shakespeare, that it was good for you. It was high art. It was literature. It was on a par with the Bible and... And and OP gives us a chance to recognize that back in Elizabethan times, they didn't suffer from those preconceptions. And uh, you know, if I were to do Edmund from, from King Lear in OP, we would hear that same kind of heightened language, but very vernacular sounding. So he says, Thou nater art me goddess, to thy law me services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me, for that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshine lag of a brother? So that's always got to be the aim of heightened language, to make it sound real, inevitable, natural, and even vernacular, right? Exactly. And, you know, somewhere along the way, we started treating Shakespeare and, and heightened language in general like broccoli. You don't have to like it, but that it's good for you and you should consume it for that reason. You know, and we, we somehow lost the idea that this is really something that should be speaking to the masses mm-hmm. so that the vernacular and, and the, the way in which it is spoken is not always going to be posh and sophisticated because right. most people aren't going to relate to that. Right. So when we use the term heightened, we somewhere along the way started thinking that heightened meant people of high social standing. And that's not always the case. And even if they are, there still needs to be something that's authentic in the way in which the language is spoken that can really connect with the masses. Let's listen to the great James Earl Jones, a piece from August Wilson's Fences. Here we go. Nigga, as long as you live in my house, you put a sir on the end of it when you talk to me. Yes, sir. You eat every day. Yes, sir. Got a roof over your head. Yes, sir. And clothes on your back. Yes, sir. Why do you think that is? Because of you. Hell, I know it's because of me. Why do you think that is? Because you like me? Like you. I go out of here every morning and bust my butt putting up with them crackers all day long. Because I like you. You is the biggest fool I ever saw. It is my job. It is my responsibility. You understand that? A man got to take care of his family. You live in my house. You sleep your behind on my bedclothes. You put my food in your belly because you are my son. You are my flesh and blood. Not because I like you. It is my duty to take care of you. 
I owe a responsibility to you. Wait now. Let's get this straight right now. But go along any further. I ain't got to like you. Mr. Rand, don't give me my money come payday because he liked me. He give me because he owe me. Now, I didn't give you everything I had to give you. I gave you your life. Your mama and me worked it out between us. And lacking your black ass was not a part of the bargain. And don't you try and go through life worried if somebody like you or not. You best make sure that they are doing right by you. You understand what I'm saying, boy? Yes, sir. Then you get the hell out of my face and go on down under A&P. <laughs> the great James Earl Jones voice, huh? You can comfortably put heightened text in his mouth any day, right? Absolutely. He's such an amazing vessel. You always hear that saying of he could just read the phone book to you back when we used to use phone books <laughs> and that you would listen to it. And what you really hear him doing there is using August Wilson's language to such incredible effect because not only does his voice James Earl Jones' voice have power, but the language that August Wilson uses has such power as well, where the character of Troy is really asserting himself in terms of parenting his child so that his son, as a Black man in the 1950s, understands that no one owes him anything, that what Troy does for him as a parent is because he brought him into the world, because he's obligated in that way. But he cannot allow his young son to go about thinking that the world, the larger world owes him something because the larger world in, for the most part is going to be unkind to him. And he really needs him to understand that. And so Wilson gives Troy some really incredible language to, to drive home that fact. And to James Earl Jones credit, even though he has that magnificent instrument, he's never turning in a virtuoso musical performance. It's always, deeply committed to the character and the circumstance. Absolutely. Deeply committed, deeply connected. Let's listen to something from uh, Fences. This is Viola Davis as Rose, different production. I've been right here with you, Troy. I got a life too. I gave 18 years of my life to stand in the same spot as you. Don't you think I ever wanted other things? Don't you think I had dreams and hopes? What about my life? What about me? Don't you think it ever crossed my mind to want to know other men? That I want to lay up somewhere and forget about my responsibilities? That I wanted someone to make me laugh so I could feel good? You're not the only one who's got wants and needs. But if I want you, Troy, I took all my feelings, my wants and needs, my dreams, and I buried them inside you. I planted a seed and watched and prayed over it. I planted myself inside you and waited to bloom. It didn't take me no 18 years to realize the soil was hard and rocky and it was never going to bloom. But I held on to you, Troy. I held you tighter. You was my husband. I owed you everything I had, every part of me I could find to give you. And upstairs in that room with the darkness falling in on me, I gave everything I had to try and erase the doubt that you wasn't the finest man in the world and wherever you was going, I was going to be there with you because you was my husband. Because that's the only way I was going to survive is your wife. You're always talking about what you give and what you don't have to give. But you take too. You take and don't even know nobody's giving. 
I was listening to that and finding it almost iambic. Yes. In, men, in many places, long stretches of iambic language. It could almost be verse, couldn't it? It could, you know, and the thing with August Wilson is he has such a distinctive rhythm to his language and it, it leans into the vernacular and the syntax of African-American English. Um, and because he leans into it, that's really what gives it its heightened quality. And that's the thing that really allows audiences to connect to it. And I, I think in large part, that's why he was so successful as a playwright, because he did use ordinary language in an extraordinary way. And that's really what people connect to when they hear it. Ordinary language in extraordinary ways. Isn't that yes. a fabulous thing to put? We're going to turn to um, Katori Hall, uh, The Mountaintop. This is the story of uh, Martin Luther King's meeting with Kameh, the uh, She's a, she's a maid, isn't she? She shows up in the play, at least to us, as a hotel maid. <laughs> and that's all I'll say, so I don't spoil the rest of it. Exactly so. Let's listen to, uh, to Angela Bassett. We have marched, our feet swelling with each step. Swollen. We've been drowned by hoses, our dreams being washed away. Yes. We've been bitten by dogs, our skin forever scarred by hatred at its height. Mm. Our godly crowns have been turned into ashtrays yes. for white men and lunch counters all across the South. Come on. To this I say, my brethren, yes. that are new. New day. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> that is so amazing. Angela Bassett is amazing. She's another incredible vessel. And what is happening here is Katoria Hall has given, who again we see as a hotel maid, this incredibly articulate sermon that she gives. And it uses the language and the vernacular of the Black church. And so Camay is talking to Martin Luther King, and you can hear uh, in his responses that idea of call and response, which is something that you find in different cultures, but it is particularly integral to the Black church. So the amens and the uh-hans and the, you know, and the clapping that he does uh, when he really agrees with the point that she makes, you can hear how the way in which she's expressing herself, he really connects to as uh, the observer. And I find it interesting here that Samuel L. Jackson, who plays Martin Luther King, what you have happening in this particular scene is that the power structure gets flipped because Martin Luther King is known as the orator and the one who really has the ability to handle language. But we see Camay as a hotel maid being the one who, um, because she's supposed to be giving her version of who she thinks he is here. Mm -hmm. we, she's the one that really has the power and the, the language, and then he's responding to it. Um, but the, the power in this speech really comes from using the language of Black church traditions. Closer to the African uh, oral tradition, of course, than, than European descendants. Exactly. And you also have, if you think about the concept of the griot, because uh, the griot is in West African cultures, the griot would be the person who would tell the history of the tribe or the people of that area. And it was always done verbally. So the actual traditions were passed down and historical knowledge was passed down verbally as opposed to being written. So 
you see that happening in the tradition of the Black playwright as well, that the history and that the importance of uh, what people have been through is spoken. It's not just written. It's meant to be heard. It's meant to be experienced in that way. And, uh, and of course, um, we realize when we listen to heightened language that it does come from that oral tradition where the tribal history, where the chronicles are preserved in verse often or in heightened language, in rhythmic language, to enable purer, purer transmission generation to generation. Exactly. So that the observer really connects to what they're hearing. And uh, Katori Hall in particular is, uh, uh, she's a wizard at that, um, at using the, the language of Black vernacular of African American English as, as heightened text. Um, she has another play called Hurt Village, which takes place in a housing project in Memphis. And there's a character who is named Crank. Um, who is uh, drug addicted. And there's a section of the play where the actress is just speaking the thoughts that the character has, but there's a, there's a clarity of articulation in it that you never see from the character again. So read? she's literally Can, speaking yeah. her mind. Sure, so she's speaking to her daughter, uh, Cookie, and in this, she's expressing regret that she is too damaged, has been too damaged and too hurt by life to really be able to show her love and articulate her love to her daughter the way she wants to. And so the character says, I thought in poetic slants, diatribes, that my mind held more words than the largest dictionary could ever find, that often I cannot heave my brain into my mouth to impress, redress the mask I die behind. In Mountaintop, we see this ordinary woman who has this extraordinary language. And here we see the same kind of thing happening, but it's more indicative or, yeah, it's more indicative of what we recognize as heightened language spoken by someone who, you know, she's basically saying that this is what is in her mind, but she's not ever able to fully express it to uh, the people around her. But we get to see how articulate her thoughts are and the words match up here. And it's so important, isn't it, to, for us to remember as text coaches, dialect coaches, directors, actors, that heightened language needs to be discovered in the moment by the actor, that it's almost as if we should have an onboard thesaurus and the actor is scanning that thesaurus for exactly the right word to express exactly that emotion and discovers that what language needs to be spoken at that moment. And that redeems it from being rehearsed oratory, doesn't right. it? Right, yeah. And, you know, we talk sometimes about the actor having ownership of the language. And that's especially true of heightened text because it's easy for it to just, to try and make it sound pretty. But I think the thing that you see, particularly with Black playwrights, is that it's not enough for the language to just sound a certain kind of way. If you haven't done the work as an actor, if you don't deeply understand what it is that you're saying, then just hearing pretty words doesn't work. That's not going to have an impact. It's not going to really tell the story. Um, so as an actor, you have to really be willing to dig, not only learn your lines or uh, you know, have this 
sort of preconceived notion about the, the word sounding pretty, but you really have to have a deep understanding of the language. It's the deep roots of the tall tree. Yes. Let's listen now to Alice Childress. This is a, a reading aloud of the play. It's, it's almost like a backer's audition or something like that. She's raising money for, for wedding band, isn't she? Last night I woke up thinking of all of my people that's been lynched. I dreamed of that all the dead black men gathered together in spirit at the foot of my bed, standing in the corners of my room, quietly waiting for something. I've always been afraid of dead people, though I know they can't do any harm. I wish they could fight back. Oh, that awful silence. The lynched dead men gathered in spirit at the foot of my bed. I got up from my troubled sleep. Who's there? Only the shadows flickering on my wall. Oh, Lula, for what these white people have done to us, all they want in return is to be loved with a greenly love. Yes, that's actually Abby Lincoln as Julia in uh, The Wedding Band. You're given the imagery of the souls of people who have been lynched, who have died unjustly, gathered at the foot of her bed. Um, and it, in terms of the way the language is used and the kind of imagery that you're given, it actually reminds me of the Dogs of War speech that Mark Antony gives in Julius Caesar, where he says, and Caesar's spirit ranging for revenge with Ate by his side come hot from hell, shall in these confines with a monarch's voice cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war, that this foul deed shall smell above the earth with carrion men groaning for burial. So you have the idea of the dead seeking revenge and, and the idea of corpses or souls uh, gathering around. And um, it just shows you that there are oftentimes lots of parallels, whether they're conscious or not, between what we recognize as heightened text and how heightened text happens in the language of Black playwrights. It's so good for you to draw these parallels. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, you've given me a smorgasbord of things to choose from. One of my favorite plays is Intimate Apparel, Lynn Nottage. And I think you're going to read a letter from the uh, Barbados man, George, yes. to Esther. Yes, so the character of George has been uh, writing these letters to Esther, who's a seamstress living in New York. Spoiler alert here. <laughs> <laughs> we find out later that George himself wasn't actually writing these letters. Though the letters are a confession of love, he may have some ulterior motives. And I think we kind of see a little sprinkling of that in this particular letter that he writes. But he says... When I first come, a solid ox was the dream of this man. But I watched the splendid way the American gentlemen touch their fine machines and laugh away the jungle. And I know what great and terrible things their sleep brings. And yet, your America sounds like a wondrous place. A man such as myself would be willing to surrender much for a taste of the modern world. It, uh, it speaks, of course, the fact that he felt the need to pay 10 cents a letter to have this composed by an eloquent, educated man um, speaks to the regard with which heightened language is held in that culture. Yes, and that brings us into code switching. 
So, you know, everyone code switches, right? The way you speak in a, a, an interview is different from the way you speak when you're hanging out with your friends. That in and of itself is code switching. But it tends to be kind of a sore point for African-Americans because code switching has often been used as a means of survival in a very literal sense. Passing, um, right? Yes, yes. So one of the things that we see here is there's a difference between the heightened language that we hear when George is reading these letters versus the language that is heightened in a different kind of way when he actually arrives in America and is speaking to, to Esther. It almost seems like two different people because technically it is, but the thing that, because Lynn Nottage is another wizard at this, is that we still get a sense when George is in America talking to Esther of his hopes and dreams and what it is that he desires. It's just the grammar, the syntax, the word choice is very different from what we're given in the letters, but uh, it's no less heightened. It's just heightened in a different kind of way. Exactly. For colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. And Tazaki Shange, you're going to read from, yes. from that wonderful piece. Yes, and what I love about Shange, because we cannot talk about um, the poetic nature of heightened language without talking about Shange's work, and for colored girls in particular, because the whole performance is a series of poems, a series of choreo poems. And um, she leans into the language of African-American vernacular, but in a way that has strong imagery and is heightened emotionally. So as an example of that, near the end of the, the play, we have Lady in Red, who's um, talking about her partner that turns out to be a very abusive man and they have an incredibly contentious relationship. So she says, there was no air the sheets made ripples under his body like crumpled paper napkins in a summer park and little specks of something from between his toes or the biscuits from the day before ran in the sweat that tucked the sheet into his limbs like he was an old frozen bundle of chicken. So we have these really strong but common images, crumpled paper napkins, biscuits from the day before, uh, comparing him to a frozen bundle of chicken. It's heightened in the sense that it is high in terms of um, the emotion. It, there's a sense of tension when you speak the words that you feel like something is about to happen. It's a clue to who this character is that she's talking about. And there's also clues in the language to the person who's speaking and what their emotional state is. So it does all of the things that heightened language does, it's just the way in which it does it might be different from what we would normally attribute to being heightened yes. language. And we hear it as vernacular, but uh, yet mm -hmm. it is it is not artless in the least. It is artful. Not in the least. Incredibly artful. Yes. Susan Laurie Parks, father comes home from the wars. Yes. So one of the things about Susan Laurie Parks is that, and this really is true as most of the playwrights that we've been speaking about, is that uh, she's also a poet in um, the play Father Comes Home from the Wars, is that um, one, she uses a Greek chorus in, you know, so we're accustomed to having heightened language in Greek plays and having a chorus. She actually uses a chorus and she uses that poetic nature that she has as a playwright, she really leans into that in the way in which the chorus 
speaks. So in this particular section, the leader of the chorus says that he's going to bet both of his shoes. These people are enslaved. So the fact that they have shoes at all is a huge point to, you know, to recognize. But the fact that he's going to bet his shoes and possibly lose them uh, is a huge deal. So the other member of the chorus says to him, when he says he's going to bet both of his shoes, the chorus member says both of them. Oh, winter is going to be cold for you. You're going to be shoeless and your feet going to freeze and turn blacker than they are now. And then Mrs. is going to chop them off because they frozen, because they frost bit dead. <laughs> Something in addition to the language itself and the poetic nature of it, what Susan Laurie Parks is talking about here actually refers to something specific in the African-American experience, which is the practice of hobbling slaves. So what that means is when a slave was what we call hobbled, um, if they ran away, sometimes they were punished by either cutting off one foot or breaking an ankle. So that the, the idea being that they could not run away again and it was meant to serve as a warning to all of the other enslaved people who might try to escape. So that's why we have that incredibly violent uh, image there of Mrs. You know, chop, chopping off the feet. It speaks to something specific in the African-American experience. Exactly. You talked about uh, playwrights who were poets. Of course, in Shakespeare's time, the playwright was called the poet. And it, it, perhaps it's a distinction that doesn't serve us well to dis distinguish playwright from poet. Right. I think, yeah, because we start to lose the idea that the language exists not to separate, but to bring us together. And I think the notion of that is more present in poetry. We need to retain that when we're talking about dramatic text as well. Indeed. Let's close with a clip of Marcus Gardley discussing the language in his play, and Jesus moonwalks the Mississippi. Let's listen to that one. What's really fascinating about this period is because all of the white soldiers left the South, um, that the white women were left with the African slaves. And what you have is now, this is really a fascinating fact about that period, is the languages for the first time merged and white women started to sound like Africans and Africans heightened their language uh, what people consider heightened in a way and so they almost became one so when people came back after that long war they were like why are y'all talking the same and that changed the southern tongue mm -hmm. that literally changed what we conceive as the southern tongue and so yeah and so cadence that's why all that why her name is cadence all of that she represents you know the southern bell and she has to change she has to change with the time language is everything in this play language is ammunition it is a prayer it is music, it's a gun, it can do everything and anything whenever it wants to. Marcus Gardley talking about the power of language. Yes. That's a, that's a fitting way to, to end our chat today, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I just wanna say one thing that Marcus Gardley mentioned is that he talks about how African-American language has influenced American English in general. And I think that if we remember that words have incredible power because there's meaning behind them, then we're less likely to look at the work of Black playwrights and separate it from Shakespeare and separate mm -hmm. it from the ancient Greeks and separate it from all these other playwrights that we tend to hold in high esteem because the language is no less heightened. Exactly. Jacqueline Springfield, thank you so very much for joining me today. Yes, thank you, Paul. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer. 
and my guest, Professor Jacqueline Springfield. To learn more about her, please see the webpage on palmyre.com devoted to this podcast. Don't forget to follow Palmyre Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at DialectPal. If you found this podcast interesting, I have other podcasts that touch on similar themes. Episode number one is about Shakespeare's original pronunciation. Episode number 11 with Amy Stoller talks about code switching. Episode number 13 with David Allen Stern is about releasing the power of the text. Episode number 15 with Phil Thompson talks about the power of rhythm in the spoken word. Episode number 33 with Joyce Sukumane discusses the voices of Africa. Episode number 34 with Rush Rem discusses the heightened language of ancient Greek theatre. And episode number 36 with Jan Gist discusses Shakespeare's shapely language. The clips I played were all from YouTube and are used under the copyright doctrine of fair use. The first A Raisin in the Sun clip starring Sidney Poitier, directed by Daniel Petrie, is copyright Columbia Pictures. The second A Raisin in the Sun clip starring Danny Glover and Esther Roll is copyright PBS. The Mountaintop, starring Samuel L. Jackson and Angela Bassett, is copyright Playbill. The clip from Wedding Band is copyright the Kino Library Archive. The first Fences clip, starring James Earl Jones, is from the Broadway premiere at the 46th Street Theatre. And the second Fences clip is also from a stage production, the 2010 Broadway revival starring Denzel Washington and Viola Davis. The Marcus Gardley clip is from a recorded conversation at St. Mary's, and the clip from Fargo, written, produced and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, is copyright Polygram Filmed Entertainment. My guest next month is David Crystal, joining me for the third time. This time we'll be conversing about conversation itself, some of the unwritten and unacknowledged rules and customs that govern how it's constructed. Much of our conversation will be centred on one of David's most recent books, Let's Talk, Oxford University Press 2020. It's a delightful read. So, let's talk next time on In a Manner of Speaking.